Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I'm Mark Honigsbaum. And I'm Hannah Maudsley. We're the disease detectives, and in this series of Going Viral, we're investigating the deadly 1918 Spanish influenza, which swept the world a hundred years ago. Episode 3, The Blue Death. Today, we're turning our attention to one of the biggest mysteries about the Spanish flu pandemic. Where did the virus first come from? There are various theories about where the Spanish flu originated. At the time, some people blamed the pandemic on the use of mutagenic gases like chlorine on the Western Front. There was another theory that it was spread by German U-boats lurking off the coast of America, and still other theories saying that it was caused by germs emanating from the rotting corpses of dead soldiers. So, of course, in 1918, people didn't know that flu was a virus, though some people had begun to suspect it. They thought it was caused by a bacterium. Even today, with the benefit of modern virology and molecular pathology techniques, we still don't know precisely where the virus came from. Yeah, the only thing that is certain is that the Spanish flu definitely didn't originate in Spain. Yes, it was called the Spanish flu because Spain was neutral during the war, so there were no restrictions on what foreign correspondents in Madrid were able to report on. And that meant that the pandemic was first reported from Spain. So basically, the flu's provenance is a mystery, but two leading views are that firstly, it started in army camps in North America, while America prepared to enter World War I, or that it started in northern France, not far from the guns on the Somme, and the scene of some of the most brutal fighting during the First World War. The leading proponent of the French origin theory is Professor John Oxford. He's been studying the flu virus for years at the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel. At a Tapla, we've got everything you need to allow the emergence of a new pandemic. So we use that as a strong background to our hypothesis that it started not in Spain, not in the United States, not in China, but here in Europe on the Western Front. So in this episode, we're going to investigate Professor Oxford's French origin theory. To do so, we made a road trip to a Tapla, which is an hour or so southwest of Calais in northern France. John thinks a tarpla is the ground zero of the Spanish flu. He believes that cases found here of soldiers dying of a mystery disease in the winter of 1916 to 17 was actually the first sign of the epidemic virus raising its ugly head. It all looks so detached now, but in 1917-18, it, it would not have been detached because from here you could hear the guns going. Now, as well as being a world-renowned virologist, John is brilliant company, and he turned up looking extremely dapper in his Englishman's outfit of tweed waistcoat and colourful scarf. You click back the little things and the lid springs open. And he was carrying a tiny suitcase reminiscent of Paddington Bear. John takes travelling light to an extreme. I hate to take a backpack of any size, so I've got a, a suitcase. We travelled by car. Now, that wouldn't have been practical in 1918 when you had to take a train and a ferry to cross the English Channel from England to France. It's kind of safer up here. Today, however, you can drive straight on to Le Chateau, the train that passes through the Channel Tunnel, and arrive in Calais 30 minutes later. Of course, in the old days, you wouldn't have been able to do this, would you, John? You'd have to take in a ferry like Vera Britton. Yes. Vera Britton was a volunteer nurse at a tarp. You basically drive onto a railway carriage and park inside the carriage. Yeah, she's given up on you. Hello. Hello. Yes. Thank you. 
During the First World War, Etaf was Britain's main military base in France. It was built on low-lying meadows adjoining the railway line from Boulogne to Paris and housed up to 100,000 soldiers and provided hospital beds for 22,000, so a huge operation. Quite a few graves. Not that you'd know that now. I mean, today the huts and tents that used to sprawl across the dunes here are all gone. The only sign of what took place here is the huge Commonwealth War Graves Commission Cemetery where 30,000 personnel who served in the First World War are buried. So we went there with John to take a closer look. Now, all of those who are buried at Atapla Cemetery are listed in the cemetery register. So that was the first thing that we looked for. There's no lock, we just open it. And here we have the Atapla Military Cemetery, 1914 to 18. United Kingdom, First World War, Australian Canadian. So it lists the different countries and the areas where they're buried. So we need, we need to sort of look up the names of some of the, well, the obvious one is Underdown, Harry Underdown. Yes. Well, this only goes up to P, okay, so we need to find you. <laughs> While Mark was looking at the register, I grilled Glyn Prissor, the Commonwealth Wargrave Commission's chief historian and an expert on the history of the cemetery. So Glyn, can you tell us a little bit about the design of Etap, what you can see and the symbolism behind it? Well, the most striking thing that you see are the rows and rows and rows of white Portland stone headstones. This is actually the largest Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemetery in France. We've got two great shelter buildings at the entrance. In between them, you've got the Cross of Sacrifice, a very familiar symbol that you see in, in every major Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemetery. But of course, this would have looked very different during the war. This would have been rows of wooden crosses, people buried as they died in the hospitals here. It was really fascinating listening to Glyn. I mean, I've been on that road before. I visited Le 2K, but I never stopped at a tarp. And from the road, it's shielded by these pine trees. And you don't know it's there until you actually step out of your car. Yeah, for me, it was the first time I'd ever been to a tarp. And the thing that really struck me was the range of regimental badges that you see on the headstones and the range of nationalities there. You know, a truly global war represented in this one site. My overall impression, though, was how, from a distance, they all look the same. You know, it's the anonymity of those people buried there. It's only when you inquire a little bit more closely, look at the inscription on the headstone, and then read some more details from the cemetery registry, that you begin to learn who are these people, how did they die, did they die in battle, or did they die from the flu? Back in 1918, of course, this whole area would have looked very different. This was effectively a city on the coast of France, one of the largest hospital centres constructed anywhere outside of Britain. And of course, it was a place that soldiers trained, it's a place that soldiers lived, and it's a place that soldiers were treated of their wounds or disease. Tens of thousands of beds, a crucial place for medical care on the Western Front. My own hospital, the Royal London, and here's a teaching hospital of, what, 500 beds. If 50 or 60 or maybe 70 people came to the door, you can hardly cope with it. So you can imagine a thousand arriving at your door, and that's the situation here. There have been terrific wounds, some of them have never been seen such wounds before. And here, most of these people, I suspect, these soldiers here would have died of those horrific wounds, unless they died of the Spanish flu, which, towards the end of 1916, a lot of the casualties coming in on the trains were wounded, and a quite an increasing number were coming in ill with pneumonias and infections of the lung. 
So John just said an interesting thing there. He, he said 1916, but I think that's important. We know that soldiers were dying of pneumonias and a mysterious bronchial illness at a tarpla because of a paper that appeared in the Lancet Medical Journal in July the following year. A study they did of 156 soldiers who had died during February and early March of 1917. Now the lead authors were Royal Army Medical Corps Officer Hammond and his colleague William Rowland. Rowland was the pathologist at a Tarpla No. 24 General Hospital. And Hammond writes that when the outbreak was at its height, 45% of the autopsies they conducted showed the presence of this disease they call purulent bronchitis in the lungs. The disease has been very fatal. The face is more often than not cyanosed, and often a considerable degree of wasting is present. The lungs are almost always bulky on account of a great amount of emphysema. The third feature is the constant appearance of a thick, yellowish pus in the bronchi. When the first soldiers started dying of flu at, at Etapla, and those were some of the first descriptions of the lungs. And they were horrified at what they were seeing. And one of them said, well, the f I've only ever seen this once before, and that was in soldiers being poisoned by mustard gas. It was the same pathology. It was a change in the, in the big airways that were being obstructed by this virus. That was why they called it epidemic bronchitis. It was the bronchi, the big airways, that were being blocked, not the little alveoli and so on. So they'd seen this with the mustard gas, and now they were seeing it with this new infection. They couldn't work out what on earth was going on. So back at Etarpt, we were on the hunt for these soldiers who had died in 1917 of a suspicious illness. Died of pneumonia, March 1917. Yeah, yeah, well, that would be, that would be, she died of pneumonia. I don't know whether they would put epidemic bronchitis, but up until this time, that's what flu was often described as, ep epidemic bronchitis. Right. And it was described in the great classical medical books in the 1850s as epidemic bronchitis or epidemic catarrh. It was only, only after the pandemic was flu mm. brought into the light. So that's interesting in itself. John there is talking about epidemic bronchitis and the Lancet article talks about purulent bronchitis. I think that illustrates the lack of a fix they had on this disease at that time. You know, it wasn't known, as, as John said, as the Spanish flu until after the event. So in the original Lancet paper, the names of the soldier victims were anonymised, but John has managed to put names to all of the 156 victims. And one of these victims was Private Harry Underdown. So we went looking for his grave. Uh, we're by the entrance. It looks like XXI is straight ahead here and slightly to the left, if I'm right. So just to give you a bit of background, Harry Underdown was listed as Private U in the Lancet article. He was a 21-year-old hay trusser from Ashford in Kent, England. He was quite a short man. He was five foot one and he'd signed up in 1915. He fought in the Battle of the Somme in 1916, following which he was hospitalised for shell shock. And in November of that year, Underdown was deemed fit for duty and he crossed back into France to rejoin his regiment. So we've got this picture of Private Harry Underdown, who looks very smart in his uniform. He's got his peaked cap on and his regimental badge on the front. I would say one thing, he's got the moustache. He's got quite the moustache. As, as you know, they all did. All those soldiers had a moustache. And I quite like his eyes. I thought he was quite a nice-looking bloke, really. So Underdown died at a Tarpla on the 21st of February 1917. His death certificate reads bronchitis, and John believes that he was one of the 
first cases of what became known as the Spanish flu. So there he is. Oh, here we go. We found him, John. Here we go. There he is. You've got his service number, his rank, his full name, Harry Hubert Underdown of the Queen's, and his death date of the 21st of February 1917. And the inscription says that greater love hath no man to lay down his life for his friends. So John clearly thinks that Harry and the other soldiers listed in the Lancet paper might have been early casualties of Spanish flu, or at least a precursor of the pandemic virus. But why Etarp? What made Etarp so different, so special? You could say that if it hadn't been for the war, there may not have been a pandemic. And we kind of know, we think we know, the conditions that enable a pandemic to arise. And those are a lot of young people, overcrowded, under stress, 100,000 at least young people crushed into these cabs that we can see up on the rise there, concentrated under stress there. This is a migration area. Since influenza is a bird virus, it's not a human virus basically, especially a pandemic one, they come from birds. And they come from the great natural reservoir in birds in migrating geese, ducks and swans. And they excrete the virus. So what happens is the virus will spread from the migrating geese and ducks and swans to the local domesticated geese, ducks and possibly chickens. There's a picture from Christmas 1917 with about 50 soldiers plucking geese. That is a dangerous occupation because the geese, when they're infected, they will have the virus all over themselves in their feather dust and everything else. Atarpla is very close to the Bay of the Somme and it's a very marshy area. And that's why it's on these bird migration routes. In fact, to this day, people go there for bird spotting. So John's is a persuasive argument, I think, not, not least because we know from the outbreaks of bird flu that hit Southeast Asia in the early noughties, that a lot of those outbreaks coincided with this festival called Tet. That's when people in Vietnam and other countries travel home to their families and they bring ducks and chickens with them to cook and consume at the table. So there was a similar mixing of people and birds at a tarpla, albeit in a different environment. So if John's argument is right and the virus started in a tarp, how did it get to North America where we know there was a Spanish flu outbreak at a similar time? So John's theory is that American doctors and nurses who volunteered to work at a tarpla in 1917 may have been infected with the virus there. Then they returned to the United States. The virus underwent other changes, mutations. And then when America entered the war, American troops could have reintroduced this virus to northern France in 1918. It was a conduit, the virus, possibility of virus moving from here to the United States. And then by the time America started to galvanize itself to join the war, there was another opportunity for the virus to infect lots of people and mutate and change again and be more spread. And then come back with the American troops back into Europe. And that causes the great pandemic of 1918. I did some more detective work at Etarp with Glyn Prissel. We took a closer look at what the layout of the cemetery can tell us about the flu victims. You see the chronology through the gravestones. They were buried as they died. I think what's really interesting in terms of Spanish flu, you see a big spike when you would expect to see it. First of all, in the early part of 1918, in the spring, 
And then particularly in the autumn of 1918, you see a huge jump in numbers. And actually that's the same in many different parts of the world. You, know, you see cemeteries where there's not many people buried and then suddenly the autumn of 18 hits and there you've got your Spanish flu. You see that same spike of deaths in civilian cemeteries as well, particularly in the second most virulent wave of the pandemic. I think it's, it's really poignant to be standing here, to look at the sunlight shining on these headstones and to reflect on the fact that many of these people won't be remembered as victims of the Spanish flu. And where is their memorial? There aren't many around the world. Yet here at Atap, we have probably one of the most tangible memorials to the victims of that terrible pandemic, carved in stone on the headstones with the dates. And you know, that's a really lasting reminder of what they went through. Private Lewis Goldberg, the Essex Regiment who died in November 1918, the 4th of November 1918, right near the armistice. And his inscription says, to live in hearts we leave behind is not to die. Yeah, that's a pretty sermon. My beloved husband, God's finger touched him and he slept. Private Ari Brown, the Australian Army Medical Corps, mourned by his wife and little son, Zora and Max. Until the day break and the shadows flee away. I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I have kept the faith. I read these every day, but I still find them incredibly moving. Everywhere you look, there's another heartbreaking story. By the time the second wave of flu hit Britain and America in the autumn of 1918, doctors still didn't have a test for it. But they now knew that a telltale sign, a signature of the flu, was this condition that they called cyanosis. Now that's the same condition that they'd seen back in 1917 in this outbreak of purulent bronchitis at a tarpla. And they also, for the first time, gave a detailed description of the cyanosis. And they said that for as long as patients had this ruddy complexion, there was no need to worry. However, now I'm quoting from the paper in The Lancet in 1919, when on the other hand, to reproduce the color of the patient's faces, especially the lips and ears, one would need to mix some heliotrope or lavender or mauvy blue with red paint to produce the right tint. The prospect is grave indeed. This color may be confined to the lips and ears, or it may affect the rest of the face as well. In either case, it is the surest basis on which to pick out those cases in a ward that are likely to be dead in an hour or two. It is not impossible for a heliotrope cyanosis patient to recover, but that he should do so has been the rare exception in this epidemic. That's why some contemporary doctors called the Spanish flu the Blue Death. And when they turned blue, as these doctors observed, it was clear that their prognosis was hopeless. Basically, their lungs were so full of fluids that their bodies were being starved of oxygen. Anyway, let's get back to Atapla, where I had another lead to follow up. This is the grave I've been searching for. This chap, E.H. Scammell, who was a private in the Air Force, he died on the 26th of October 1918. There's nothing on the grave to indicate what he died from, but we know that William Rowland took a section of his lung and preserved it on a pathology slide. So that would imply that he thought that Scammell had died of some form of influenza. One of these invisible influenza dead, 
laid out here with all the other dead from the First World War. But unless you can fill in the background, you wouldn't know that they were necessarily casualty of the pandemic as opposed to just being another casualty of the Great War. So the reason I knew to look for Scammell's grave is that before we went to Atapla, I'd spoken to a descendant of William Rowland, that's the pathologist who had written the original Lancet paper. It turns out that Rowland kept all his pathology slides. So they're now in the possession of Rowland's granddaughter, Fiona Cox, whom I spoke to on Skype. I should have asked a lot more questions than I did. She never met her grandfather and relied on her grandmother to fill in the blanks. I remember her telling me it was based out in France. I remember her saying that Vera Britton was there as well. But not much else, actually. She, she was a minimalist, so she threw all his things out. There was, we had nothing of his. And I, I think it was just luck that my father, who was also a doctor, went to Grandpa's office and he found this box of slides in the office and he brought it home with him. Oh, right. And that's really all we have. It's nice to get away from staring at A's, C's, G's and T's and actually make a human connection. So this is Michael Warraby. He's a molecular biologist and an expert on evolutionary genetics. Two years ago, Warraby visited Fiona at a home in the Lake District and asked if he could take some of her grandfather's slides back to his laboratory in Arizona to see if he could retrieve flu virus from them. And she agreed. So these are various tissues that are fixed and then embedded in wax, and this would be a very thin section that mounted on a microscope slide. So what could these slides show us? Well, potentially, they could demonstrate once and for all whether the prurulent bronchitis of 1917 was a form of flu, as John suspects, and also whether it was a precursor of the 1918 pandemic virus. It could show that this virus had a, a fairly long, under-the-radar, not, not totally cryptic, noticed by these physicians during the war, but that would be a very, very interesting finding if, if indeed it were the same virus, or perhaps a slightly different version of the virus that lacked one or two key changes, or it's possible that it's a red herring, completely different virus. We don't get any genetic material at all, and we just have to keep wondering exactly what it was. Wow, that's really tantalising. So do we have any answers yet? Does John have the proof he needs? No, frustratingly, we're still waiting for Michael Warraby to conduct these crucial tests. So we're in a bit of a waiting game, I'm afraid. We want to make sure that we have everything lined up. It's a very small amount of material, and, and we don't want to destroy. These are samples, but they're also family heirlooms. Blimey. Right, so back to it up. So we walked into the sand dunes behind the cemetery with John. It's now eerily quiet, just a vast, deserted, scrubby, sandy, wooded area. You know, on the Western Front, people poke around, don't they, looking for shell cases. Here, you poke around and you get a syringe or um, a pair of surgical scissors from the hospitals. And so we're trying to imagine how it looked 100 years ago when it was a bustling British Army camp. I mean, because we're standing on just a giant sand dune. Yes. It seems to go on and on and disappears yeah. into the forest and then pops up again on the other yes. side. Yes, that's why the French allowed the British to use it because they couldn't use it for farming and you couldn't do anything here. I mean, this vast camp on the sand dunes, you can conceive it almost as an unnatural experiment that's going on for this whole period during the war yeah. because we've got 
a vast concentration of people from all over the world yes. in this small area. Yes, yes. You have the fact that there are, it's on a bird migration route, yeah. the Somme. Yeah. But the other element, which I found fascinating, is that in order to feed this vast number of men, the army conducted this new experiment with piggeries, right? Yeah. Well, I was, I was really surprised to see the piggeries because I didn't even think about that. Mm. And then I went to the Imperial War Museum, they suddenly were, were finding photographs of soldiers in a tap there within the area here looking after pigs. So the significance of pigs is that we now know that pigs are what are called mixing bowls for flu viruses, including mammalian and bird flu viruses. And just as human flus can get into pigs, so swine flus can also cross over and infect people, as occurred during the 2009 swine flu pandemic. That's really interesting for me. One of the nurses' diaries that I've come across has said that some people at the time thought it might be a form of swine fever. So they may have been on the right track even then. This might support John's theory. Everything was perfect for a virus to emerge, like influenza, an opportunistic virus. And here, I think it did start. On this spot, maybe exactly where we're speaking, something came up which in the end would spread around the world and kill 100 million people. And I think you feel that. You feel that now. Well, the one I see ghosts, actually, of the whole affair. It was extraordinary visiting a tarpler with John and standing with him in the dunes, he almost had me believing in ghosts. Yeah, for me, one of the most moving parts was thinking about a nurse whose diary I've been reading. Her name's Dorothea Crudson, and she worked as a volunteer nurse in Etaple. She was born in Bristol in 1886, and she was stationed in Etaple from January 1918. Luckily for us, she kept a diary during the war, and it really illustrates how the flu and the war came to her head all at the same time. Imagine the stress they must have been under. Let's start in October 1918. This is the 27th of October. There seems every prospect of a bad epidemic shortly. And the other hospitals are taking in numbers of cases. There are strong rumours that the complaint is very rife in the camps and knowing how infectious it is, one shouldn't be at all surprised at it sweeping through everywhere. Two of the staff have already been laid low by it and I expect more will shortly follow suit. And now, a week and a half later, on Tuesday, the 6th of November, 1918. The last time I was down on Tipperary Road... That's one of the names given to one of the pathways in a tarped camp. The men were all very busy, taking up every tent and lifting the floorboards, digging up the sand underneath and, I suppose, disinfecting it to try to combat the flu germs, which seemed to almost be causing a panic among the authorities. Armistice Day, Monday, 11th of November, 1918. There does not seem to be any great spirit of elation, perhaps because no one quite realises the event yet. And also, of course, there are still very sick men in the hospital who are fighting for their lives. And that always brings one face to face with serious things and the realities of life. So despite the war finishing, Dorothea continues nursing at a tarp camp. Sunday the 2nd of March, 1919. Flu is still rampant and nearly every flu ward has one or more bad case. Nothing seems to be of any use in these pneumonia cases. No amount of careful nursing attention can check it, and the medical officers are getting really rather depressed by the hopelessness of the disease. They feel so helpless in the face of its virulence. 
Dorothea writes her final diary entry on Thursday, the 6th of March, 1919. And remember, this is four months after the war has ended and she's still out there. Matters are not too bright at home. With the flu and strikes and one thing and another, let's hope that the country pulls itself together soon and emerges better and stronger in every way. Six days later, on the 12th of March, 1919, Dorothea Crudson died, aged only 32. Now, her death certificate recorded peritonitis. We don't know for sure if she died of flu, but it seems highly likely. So her grave is here in the middle of Etarp Cemetery. It's got the British Red Cross and the Order of St John, and the bottom of Dorothea's tombstone reads daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Henry Crudson, Nottingham, Sursum Corda. Literally in Latin means lift up your heart and it's related to the Eucharist prayer, so quite a religious epitaph there. And she was a, a voluntary nursing sister, she didn't have to be here, but she'd come here to look after the soldiers, look after the men, and had ended up staying here for the last century. How did you find it visiting Dorothea's grave? It was really moving actually. I've read her diary, I feel like I've experienced her experiences through her own words, but being there at a top and seeing where she now rests was very powerful. Yeah, and what I found really interesting is, you know, I, I've been researching flu for the better part of 15 years now. I've hunted out all sorts of diaries and books. I'd never come across Dorothea Crudson's account before. So I think what this shows us in a way that even after a century of this, there are still people who may have died of flu have been forgotten, have some have been erased from history. Of course, one account that many people have heard of is that of another famous nurse who worked at a Tarpler, and that was Vera Britton. Absolutely. So her book, Testament of Youth, was rediscovered in the 1970s and has recently been made into a film. So in the book, she describes her experience at a Tarpler, where she spent 10 months nursing men on the acute medical ward of Number 24 General Hospital. That's the same ward where Harry Underdown succumbed to purulent bronchitis in February 1917. Now, Britain arrived a year later when the ward was full of gas gangrene and pneumonia cases. And in particular, she recalls being chased up and down the hut by a stark, naked, six-foot-four New Zealander in what she calls the fighting stage of delirium. Yeah, one of the most notable side effects of the Spanish flu was this mental disturbance that victims could suffer from, either at the time of being ill or soon afterwards. Let's hear from Vera Breton's memoirs. For her, there was a stark contrast between nursing the wounded and nursing the sick. The tiny, virulent microbe that attacked the body seemed to dominate the spirit as well. Why was personality so vulnerable? Why did it succumb to such small, humiliating assailants? I mused perturbedly as I hurried with bedpans along the frozen paths between the huts under the bright December stars. It's very likely that Vera Britton herself suffered from the Spanish flu. In January 1918, she got a mysterious bug, which she called Pyrexia of Unknown Origin, or PUO. Now, luckily for her, the bug didn't kill her, like it did poor Dorothea Crudson, who never left a tarp. So, Mark, did our trip to a tarp with John manage to convince you that the Spanish flu started in France? Well, John asked me the very same question on our way home, and here's what I told him. We all like origin stories, partly because of the way when Hollywood or any book treats an epidemic disease, there's always a place it starts. That's how we understand epidemics. 
The fact is, though, that we'll probably never know where the Spanish flu epidemic did start. And the reason we'll never know is we don't actually know where a lot of modern epidemics are. We don't really know where Zika started. But there is a value to going somewhere like a tarp and actually thinking this isn't just about this virus and anonymous figures. It actually shows you that there were consequences for real people who were here. I'm still kind of agnostic about where it may have started, but if it had to start somewhere, a tarpler in northern France is as good a place as any. Mark says he may not be convinced about the origin here. Well, I am convinced, actually. I've spent the last 10 years trying to convince the Americans they got it all wrong, and I'm, I'm totally convinced they got it all wrong. It does help to cement it in one's mind coming to a place like this. And although I'm sad about the whole event here, I can see some brightness about it as well. Next time on Going Viral, we're going to be investigating the other leading flu origin theory, that it started in America. It does seem very coincidental, if not causal, that you can trace cases back to Haskell. And we head to the Chinese cemetery in northern France to find out about the little-known Chinese labourers who were shipped to the Western Front. In almost a unique way, the Chinese Labour Corps are hidden from us. Some argue it was actually these guys who brought the flu from Asia to Europe. This time when doctors go out and they investigate the outbreak of pneumonic plague, they immediately say this isn't pneumonic plague, it's actually Spanish influenza. Going Viral is presented by me, Mark Honigsbaum. And me, Hannah Maudsley. Please do subscribe to our series so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love you to rate us too. Follow us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod. Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. And the series is supported by the Wellcome Trust.